This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Hi, everyone. When I asked Barry for some advice on what I should talk about today, he said, well, often people treat practice like they're going to the movies. They sit for a while, watch whatever's playing, and then they get up and leave. Uh, I might be paraphrasing here, but he said, taking Jukai should be about moving towards deciding what is going up on that screen. I like that response because it's that idea of intentionality and commitment that beyond the specifics of the precepts themselves that I find both appealing and also the most frightening. I realized surprisingly recently that often the hardest thing for me is to feel really and truly a part of anything. Still, what Barry said is a pretty open-ended response when it comes down to trying to put together some words to actually say. I told Barry I was afraid I didn't have anything particularly dramatic or interesting to say, and that I hadn't lived enough or didn't have enough strife to really warrant sharing anything. He said, well, it doesn't have to be like an AA speech. (laughs) (laughs) The more I have thought about it, the more I realized that there have been quite a few of the so-called wrong reasons why I came to Zen. Now, at this point in my talk, I think I was hoping that at first that I could just skip over the part where I talk about my parents and my upbringing. Uh, I thought maybe we could just take that as red, but I soon realized that that just wouldn't do. Uh, And I have to admit at the outset, I've been more generous and tolerant with other people's struggles and been guarded with sharing my own, even to the point of denying them. Uh, But tonight I'm not going to do that. My parents, who I'm grateful to say are both still alive and live in California, were both very busy white-collar professionals when I was growing up. I, as the middle son of three boys, uh, in many ways was the classic middle child. Uh, the neglected but more independent compromiser slash peacemaker. Uh, my parents put me and my brothers in public schools, um, and I'm not sure if it's because they had gone through public school and were successful uh, and figured it would work fine for us, but it, for many reasons, didn't. I can still remember vividly the first week of kindergarten, uh, my dad asking me if I had any homework. (laughs) Uh, And I probably did have some little worksheet to do and turn in, but for some reason I said no. And he said, okay. I don't remember what happened the next day at school because by now it's become a part of a long, long saga of me showing up to school day after day, year after year, without having done whatever assignment. I would feel humiliated and ashamed. I wouldn't be able to understand uh, what was going on or why I couldn't perform like other kids. Uh, Eventually, parent-teacher conferences would be called Uh, Admonishments would be issued to me, uh, promises would be made, systems of checks would be agreed to, and then quickly they'd fall apart. 
uh, my parents, I should say, are very educated, liberal, and urbane, and I was often always precocious and often sure, assured that I was both smart and special. Yet, apart from being uh, quick to catch on and good with words, I rarely had that experience of feeling smart or special at school where I spent most of my days as a child and teenager. On the contrary, I felt inept, academically worthless, except in rare cases where a teacher would take a special interest in me or I could skate by on a kind of native intelligence. Uh, by the time I was old enough to be considered fully responsible, for by, well, that by then had become a, a deeply ingrained, uh, self-undermining problem. I had already decided that it was the institution of school that had failed me, and I was extremely pissed about it. I was angry in a way that only true psychotics and teenagers can be, uh, for reasons that I didn't yet have the tools to like, comprehend. Uh, I gave up on teachers in schools in whose presence I felt so abandoned and frustrated. Uh, it took years for me to realize, uh, much later, that it was actually my own parents who had really let me down. Uh, I rebelled against the system by refusing to go to college after high school because, frankly, the idea of it terrified me. I almost didn't graduate high school, uh, and it's not clear to me that my parents are, or even to this day, are, were ever aware of this. Even black public schools have some standards, and I just didn't have the grades. Fortunately, my saving grace came in the form of some surrogate parental figures uh, who helped me find some footing and who saw what was going on with me clearer than I and my parents could. Um, after I was free of the system, I uh, went off to trade school, uh, became a, a welder, and then became a, a commercial diver which was a pretty exciting thing to do at the time. Uh, and after doing that for a while, I felt like I had matured a lot. Uh, part of me, and then part of me always really felt the need to prove that I could go to university and that I could conquer that fear. Uh, now, so far, this has been about a two-and-a-half-year process for me studying Zen, um, including the last year of studying precepts with my Jukai class. Uh, and as uh, a well-read, uh, introspective teenager, I was exposed to Zen um, through a lot of art, uh, through John Cage, uh, the mathematician Douglas Hofstadter. I found its stories and I'd see it's attractive, but it was a long and circuitous route for me um, before I thought about taking it on as a practice. My first year of school after I came to New York to study uh, went okay. Uh, my second year was a mess. Um, I was in a very bad relationship. I drank a lot. Um, and when I entered university, I had thoughts to become an engineer. Uh, but I found, to my surprise and my dismay, that when I sat down to focus on some very simple math homework, uh, intense feelings of fear and abandonment would just flood up out of nowhere. It would paralyze me. I would be literally unable to follow instructions on the page. Uh, as it turned out, uh, no amount of being a badass commercial deep-sea diver had prepared me for feeling, at 25 years old, like that loss of the third grader. Knowing that I was an adult and should be able to cope or get help didn't help. Uh, it only reminded me more 
of uh, those feelings of being ashamed and responsible for my failures so many years earlier. Uh, That year, uh, as I said, I I began drinking a lot more. Um, I tried and failed to take up smoking. Uh, I adopted uh, a very pronounced sort of fuck you attitude towards school and classes, which is really ironic in retrospect because it was totally my decision and effort which got me into Columbia in the first place. Uh, But I was back in that very adolescent place, I think. Uh, And I had seriously underestimated the demons that I would find waiting for me there. Uh, I fail the class. I find myself rightly on academic probation. Uh, And I had always struggled with bouts of depression as a kid, but never thought about, never had suicidal thoughts until then, and I realized I needed help. Um, I found a therapist who started me on antidepressants, which cleared the fog enough for me to see how my behavior had all the markings of true self-destructive pattern. Uh, And I still behaved in ways that were clearly completely nutty and incomprehensible to me. Um, I missed a lot of appointments and deadlines because it's a slow process. Um, And that would send me back into cycles of self-blame and self-doubt. That scene of me sitting in the library, ostensibly ready to do some schoolwork, but my brain completely paralyzed with fear, with that anxiety still haunts me. A while ago, to help me understand these experiences, I coined a term for them. Uh, I call it redlining. Uh, like in a car, if you rev your engine too high, you'll hear it start to make a loud and angry noise. It'll feel like very bad things are about to happen, like something might explode. Now, uh, psychologically, for me, redlining uh, is simply this kind of mind-erasing level of anxiety. Uh, Once I started using this term, I began noticing its signs in many unexpected places. Redlining can be an offhand comment by a friend taken as a slight. It can be a minor but imminently pressing financial issue I'm putting off. It can be uh, an intimidating authority figure who makes me unable to speak truthfully and clearly. And it's the root of a lot of my uh, self-undermining, procrastinating, and demurring behavior. That experience. Even while writing this talk, I would often feel this anxiety. And so I would push it away because few things cause me as much anxiety as writing. You see, uh, back when I was a kid, I think I contracted around that identity of being smart, gifted, and special. Um, And... Now I see how jealously I guarded that identity uh, to the point where I could only feel comfortable engaging in circumstances that totally affirmed that for me. If I didn't have anything smart or special to say today, why say anything? I think that sense of uh, separateness and rebellion was for me a survival instinct. And my separation was total. Even with friends, I... Looking back on it, I realized that I would put barriers between us. Uh, And I think that I always found ways to identify as better or different from people I had close relationships with. And then I would feel the effects of that alienation and would feel like I am, you know, missing out on crucial aspects of connection and it was a bad deal. Uh, Writing this talk, I was at many points afraid of creating that barrier between myself and 
and all of you because I so much enjoy being a part of the Sangha and I didn't want to mess that up. So I would push that thing away. I would push away the responsibility of writing this talk. I was afraid I'll fail to engage any one of my words. My words will fall flat. They'll feel unauthentic. And in the end, it will be a confused 15 minutes that no one will particularly like or remember. And that for all my apparent smartness, nothing I say can have very much value. And underneath it all is a strong feeling that if I could only cut through the muck, I might just have something worth sharing. And then it hit me like that, that it's just me, as Barry might say, warts and all. This crisis, this experience of crisis, has a clear voice that is intimately familiar to me. It says, what you have to give in this moment will surely fail you. Better to save face and sit this one out. Eventually, after sitting for a while, I began to notice how so much of my life has been shaped by this one force, this guardedness, this withholding, this uh, stinginess. Allowing myself to have these feelings and still be present and skillful is a great challenge, perhaps the challenge. Now, when I think about the quality of stinginess, the image that springs to mind is the caricature of the wealthy miser. He possesses something scarce, something highly valued uh, by others, but won't part with it, though it may benefit them. But then that got me thinking about one who feels that what he has is commonplace, substandard, or of questionable value, and therefore perhaps not worth giving. And then how much more toxic to feel that what you have to give has negative value and will likely do yourself harm to share it. Um, Diane Rosetta writes that releasing that grip is seldom an all-in-one process. First, you have to become aware of our resistance to giving and then give what you can within that moment and then notice your experience and repeat. Um, And it's only through that process of slowly observing and opening up that I feel I am ever able to meet myself with openness and possibly give myself opportunities to be skillful. I have a close friend who sometimes would vent to me about stress at her job. Uh, Oftentimes, verbal interactions with her bosses would leave her feeling subordinated, stifled, uh, blamed unfairly for any number of company problems. Um, And my sense is that this would inevitably lead to feelings of anger, powerlessness, And after she had blown off some steam, she would often say, half-jokingly, but I think that there's a kernel of truth in this, that in these confrontations, quote, whoever has the least emotions wins. In a big way, I totally identify with this formulation. Uh, I mentioned before that I went to public schools, and this has left me with a, shall we say, uh, ambivalent relationship to authority figures. And I often find myself chafing with imperfect bosses and teachers. Uh, And I'm often thinking, one way or another, how can I get the upper hand? Uh, Some people have power over me. When I'm on the cushion, and there's some fixation playing over my head, uh, and I say to myself, okay, well, now it's time to get serious and do Zazen, it's usually something like this. It's usually some kind of power struggle. Um, This is often the reason why why I um, hold back. 
Norman Fisher writes that it's desire first and foremost which activates the mind. Uh, at first blush, I often think that these repetitious thoughts are about feeling wounded pride. But as I feel them more deeply, I've realized it's a pattern of feeling. Of feeling compromised, vulnerable, and trying to respond to that by somehow twisting situations to my advantage with words, uh, at least in my own imagination. Uh, these can be very perplexing, but I know that in some sense the, the anger I feel is my own, uh, and my antagonists are always much more cruel and dismissive in my own thoughts than they could ever be in real life. Uh, once I realize this, I can stop changing my responses, stuck in past or future conversations, playing them out like a chess game. Uh, you know, some thoughts are easier to gently coax out the back door than others. Some come right back in through the front door. Uh, some thoughts will raid the fridge and sleep on your couch and seemingly never leave until you're forced to simply acknowledge the presence and persistence. Now, to that comment my friend made that whoever has the least emotions wins, now I think I would have a different answer. I think I would say that I think that the reality is completely the reverse. That it's whoever can let themselves have their feelings wins in the sense of not separating. Either by disavowing the feelings that are their own, but also in the bigger sense that we are not separate from each other. Through studying Zen, I've learned that when I am able to fully own and feel my emotions, not try to push them away or intellectualize them into safe concepts, that I feel most connected and often truly grateful. It has surprised me to learn how much and how intensely it is possible to feel good or bad without sinking under the weight of it. As long as I don't add in judgment to it or feel the need to shore up a preferred self-image, this can be hard practice, but it's worth it. Oftentimes when I'm in difficult confrontations, I use an image uh, that I gleaned from Jessica's Jukai talk from last year, the image of a parachute, which for people who don't remember or know, I remember very vividly from my childhood a game we would play. Kids stand around holding a parachute. You count one, two, three, and you pick up the parachute. Everyone would sit inside with the dome of the parachute. And as to a kid, this is an amazing architecture. Um, But in practice, it's this uh, really powerful trick of taking a situation where you feel a push, where you want a barrier and you want to separate from something difficult or somebody who brings up difficult emotions and just to create a space where you can have connection, where you can acknowledge this person. Um, I have another quote by Norman Fisher who writes that he's uh, referring to a a story from uh, Martin Buber who uh, comments on uh, an old rabbinic tale of how two strangers who are traveling to a distant town have something in common in being strangers that they would never have found in their home life. That the experience of being strangers can connect people and how, in a sense, we are all strangers. And the first strangers that we meet in this life are our parents. And often it's very, very difficult to see them this way. 
I've also found through sitting zazen that I am often a stranger to myself. And this can be scary, but also liberating because it allows me to meet myself with that openness and possibility that that gives space to change some of these narratives that are so hurtful. Uh, to me, this aligns with the Zen saying of be the host, not the guest. Create a space for openness and take that responsibility on yourself. Now, practicing these precepts is very difficult, but taking Jukai ultimately constitutes a commitment to the Sangha, to practice, to ordinary mind, um, and a commitment to practicing with these precepts, whether it's easy or hard. Uh, I'd like to end with some thanks. Uh, first of all, to everybody for being here and listening. I'd like to thank Barry for being my teacher. Um, and uh, a lot of people aren't lucky to, enough to have even one Zen mom, but I happen to have three, <laughs> which I think makes me outrageously lucky. And also to Andrew, who uh, joined our Jukai group for a couple sessions. Thank you.